Okay, at this time, we're going to be listening to our first message by Mr. Reg Noland. It is entitled, Conquering Corruption. When I say conquering corruption, I don't mean we're going to take them over militarily like we saw on this past Thursday. Did you enjoy the military parade? <clears throat> kind of, I didn't see it personally, but I saw the stills afterwards. Kind of reminded me of, you know, Beijing or Moscow or Berlin circa 1940. Yeah, we are beginning at the, again at the beginning of political uh, season. And there are 25 persons at last count, or over 25 persons at last count. You saw the 20 on the Democratic uh, debates. There were four others that didn't qualify for the debates. Then there's the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, the Socialist Party, and our current White House resident, of course, is uh, trying to renew his lease on the Oval Office. So we've got about at least 25 persons all vying for President of the United States. Personally, I don't know why anyone would want the job. Okay, uh, it, it must be very, very, very stressful because all the past presidents who took the office with a full dark head of hair left the office hoary-headed. Maybe not quite as much as Mr. Gregory over here, but pretty close. Okay, <clears throat> further, having that much uh, power corrupts anyone who wasn't corrupt already. We haven't had a righteous leader in decades. So I began to wonder... Would we even recognize a righteous leader if he, she were to show up on the scene? Would we? Would we? Surely we would recognize him as religious or righteous leader post hoc um, because he would be he, she would be assassinated within two weeks of taking office for this world system will abide only its own. So what would a righteous leader look like, especially after such a long period of corruption, of high crimes and misdemeanors? I can think of no better example of a good leader and reformer than King Josiah. So we're going to study King Josiah here at the beginning. All right, so first we'll go to uh, 2 Kings 23. There are two passages related to uh, King Josiah. This is the one I'm going to use. Uh, 2 Kings 23, verses 1 through 27. Okay, now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord and with all the men of Judah and with all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing the, books of the, word, of the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Note, the temple of the Lord had lain in disarray and disuse for years because of the corrupt leaders and the influence of pagan religions that permeated the land. So much so that the law, the book of the covenant, which should have been read aloud every Sabbath because some people were not literate at that time, so that should have been read aloud every Sabbath, had become lost and had just recently been rediscovered. Isn't that a shame? Okay. Uh, verse 3. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant uh, before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandment, his testimony, and his statute with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And the people took a stand for the covenant. And notice what this is. This is a public commitment of the leader and his constituency followed by action. A modern counterpart might be, say, JFK's call for the U.S. to place a, um, 
man on the moon before the end of the decade. And this year, July 20th, uh, 2019, we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of that accomplishment. Verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal, the, for Ashereth, and for the uh, host of heaven. And he burned them uh, uh, outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. That's important. Then he removed the idolatrous priests from the kings of Judah who had ordered... Uh, uh, whom the kings of Judah had ordered to burn incense on the high places in the city of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem. And though, uh, those who burned incense to Baal the, the, and to the sun and to the moon, to the constellations and all the hosts of heaven. In other words, he drained the swamp. He came in and drained the swamp by firing all of those who were walking contrary to the way of God, to the previous corrupt leaders who had engaged in cronyism, appointing to priestly offices all those who would support the king's position for a price, but not perform the duties of God. By the way, the Bethel that I mentioned earlier is the, was the center of um, worship so that to burn the religious relic and to carry their ashes to Bethel was the effect to desecrate their most, hol most ho holy places. Verse 6. And he brought the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem and he burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to ashes and threw its ashes in on the graves of the common people. And he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord where the women wove uh, hangings for the wooden image. And he brought the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to uh, Beersheba. And he, by the way, Geba's in the north, Beersheba's in the south, so it says the whole, it's basically saying the whole width of the nation. So from north to south. And he also broke down the high places at the gates which were uh, at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were uh, to the left of the city of the gate. Okay. According to the Bible knowledge commentary, God's chosen had gone so far astray that they had converted the temple of the Lord built by Solomon into a temple to pagan gods of astrology and fertility. That wooden image that, they, that he had brought out was an Asherah pole. And what an Asherah pole is? That's a phallic symbol. Uh, and which Manasseh had erected uh, during the, uh, directly in the temple. You want to ch check the reference on that? That's 2 Kings 21, uh, 1 through 7. I'm not taking time to read that. The perverted persons were male temple prostitutes. And the King James Version renders the site as a grove as they grow, which diminishes the fact that these perversions were actually occurring inside the temple of God. To say it's a grove means it's outdoors somewhere around. No, it was actually taking place inside the temple of God. Um, uh, but the King James Version does aptly call the perverted persons sodomite who were conducting their <coughs> offerings inside the ritual booths these uh, tents of commerce were the, and the women who were selling uh, things they were selling a whole lot more than wall hangings believe me the gates the gatekeepers control who could enter the temple and they are comparable today to like executive assistants or press secretaries who could control access to the leaders 
All right, verse 9. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. And he defiled Topheth, which is the, uh, in the valley of the son of Heman, that no man might make his son or daughter to pass through the fire to Moloch. Now this is an important point here. This was effectively child sacrifice, where children were burned alive on the altar of Moloch. The city of Topheth takes its name from the root word Toph, T-O-P-H, which means drum, because the beating of the drum was intended to drown out the cries of the murdered children. So that's where Topheth comes from. Verse 11. Then he removed the horses of the king of Judah that had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech and the officer who was in the court and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. This is the counterpart to the Greek god Helios who was believed to pull the sun across the sky riding in flaming golden chariots uh, pulled by flying horses. But the origins actually date back to Assyria. Verse 12. The altars that were on the roof, uh, the upper chambers of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the courts of the house of the Lord, and the king broke down and pulverized there, and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the places that were the east of Jerusalem, and, there, and which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abominations of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abominations of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. Okay, a couple of things I want you to realize here. These altars to pagan gods were actually set up inside the courts of the temple of God. Talk about an abomination. That is one. And they were offering their altar inside the courts of the temple of God. Uh, and the other thing, too, uh, about Solomon. Solomon had, as we well know, 700 wives and 300 concubines, I think it was. But these wives were not the romantic kind of wives, necessarily. They were mostly political wives. So when you sign a treaty with a king, he gives your, his daughter to you as a wife uh, and as to seal the contract, to make it a blood family relationship here. Uh, so to say that he had 700 wives is kind of misleading because many of them were political. But to appease his pagan wives, Solomon had high places built, groves or temples to their god, and allowed them to continue their worship practice on the hill to the east of the city, hence the Mount of Corruption, as it's called. An act that led to tolerance of uh, idolatry, to temple prostitution, and the worship of pagan deities. So we cannot um, exonerate uh, Solomon. Completely. Um, he bro but, no, no, no. Uh, he broke in pieces, this is verse 14, he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images, again, the asterisk poles, and he filled their places with the bones of men. Now these pillars, they were like little gravestones or uh, property markers. Uh, where, and where do we see such kind of uh, carved images such as Jesus on the cross in places of worship today? I'll let you think about where that happened. By filling their places with bones of men or the ashes of human bones, Josiah made these places 
ceremonially unclean, thereby assuring that no one would touch them or enter into them again. Verse 15. Uh, Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high places which Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel the sin, had made, both the altar and the high places he broke down. And he burned the high place and crushed it in the powder and burned the wooden image. And Josiah turned, he saw the tombs uh, that were... As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain, and he sent uh, and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altars, and he filed it according to the word of the Lord, which uh, the man of God proclaimed, who pro- uh, proclaimed these words. And he said, Whose gravestone is this that I see? So the men of uh, the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God from Judah, and proclaim these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Let him alone. Let no one move his bones. Uh, so they let the bones alone, and with the, with the bones of the prophet from the, uh, that came from Samaria. This is an interesting character. We do not know his name. He is an anonymous man from Judah is what he's doing. So he's a man of God from Judah. He prophesied, though, exactly what Josiah would do 269 years, or 270 years approximately, uh, before he did it. That's interesting. This is a fulfillment of prophecy that we hear, see here with, uh, with uh, Josiah. Go back to 1 Kings uh, 13, verses 1 through 6, and we'll read about what this man of God from Judah says. And behold, a man of God from Judah... Um, to Bethel by the word of the Lord and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense and he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said O altar, altar uh, thus says the Lord behold a child Josiah by name notice he named him he called him out by name uh, Josiah by name shall be born to the house of David and on you he shall uh, sacrifice to the high priest of the, shall sacrifice the priest to the high places who burn incense uh, on you and men's burns and, and shall be burned on you. He's talking to the altar now. This is an address to the altar. And he gave a sign the same day saying, this is a sign which the Lord has spoken. Uh, surely the altar will be split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. Uh, by the way, the practice of giving a sign was very, very common at this time. You give a sign as evidence that the prophecy is real and from God and bound to come true. Um, so when he so it came to pass that uh, Jeroboam heard the, uh, the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel. And he stretched out his hand on from the altar saying, arrest him. And then his hand which he had stretched out toward him withered. Okay, so that he could not pull it back. And the altar also split. And the ashes poured out on the altar according to the, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the Lord answered and said unto the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the God uh, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and it became as before. And in the following passages, the king tries to uh, uh, reward uh, the man from God uh, and uh, offer him all sorts of trinkets and things, and he refuses and goes his own way. We never hear of him again. So this man just disappears into history. Okay, back to uh, Kings uh, 23, uh, verse 19. Second, uh, second, yeah, 2 Kings 23, 19. 
Now, Josiah took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the city of Samaria and the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. Those kings were Ahaz, Ammon, and um, uh, Manasseh. Okay. Um, Okay, uh, he ex- executed all the priests of the high priests the places he was there on those altars and burned men's bones on them and he returned to Jerusalem. And the king commanded all the people saying, keep the Passover. Notice, after they had not done this in years because the book had been lost and all the, the sacraments. And the, but here, Josiah comes and says, we're going to keep the Passover. Okay. Then the king commanded the people to say, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. Such a Passover surely there had never been since the day of uh, the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away all those who consulted mediums and spiritists, that's the soothsayers and wizards and things of that nature, the household gods called teraphim, um, and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the word of the law which was written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Now before him there was no king like him who turned turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor after him did any king uh, did any arise like him? Hmm. Okay. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great uh, wrath, uh, which, with which his anger was aroused against Judah, because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Okay, unfortunately, King Josiah's reign was, on, was short-lived, only like 18 years or so. Um, it was a short-lived bright spot in the darkness. For the evil that had done, been done by King Ahaz, Manasseh, and Ammon had deep roots, deep roots, and had penetrated to the very heart of the people, so that when Josiah was slain in battle with the king of Egypt, the people raised up of all people Jehoahaz to be their king, who who did evil throughout his entire reign. Josiah may have cut off the stalk of evil, but its roots ran deep and indicate the true heart of the people. Corruption is like Johnson grass or honeysuckle. Or these are two plants that are very, very difficult to eradicate once they've established a foothold um, because they have horizontal tap roots. That is taproot that run this way, not straight down. Okay, all right. So, and they connect all the plants together so that we can only get rid of the individual plants by eliminating the entire system. It is as if they were all colluding in some great evil conspiracy to overrun the garden and obstruct the production of beneficial plants. Pruning away the individual plant does not eliminate the root source. However, the existence of a single shoot, that implies the existence of the root system, the taproot system. Likewise, once corruption gets a foothold in society, then it quickly permeates society and affects every individual therein, either directly or indirectly. 
Today, we see a myriad of manifestations of corruption, but we may view them only as individual phenomena, not realizing that the vein of evil, the vein of evil that connects them underneath it all. For example, I know that many of us are vehemently opposed to the practice of abortion, and quite rightly so, as Steve illustrated in his message last Sabbath. And the clinics that perform such service, they may as well build themselves as the temples of Molech or Chemosh or Kali, which is the Indian god of, that requires a death, human sacrifices. For they perform much the same function of child sacrifice. However, abortion is but a symptom of a much deeper, ubiquitous evil that's filtering through the hearts of all, man, all modern society. That evil is a spirit of hatred, a lack of love and charity, a selfishness, an utter disrespect for the miracle of life, a lack of awe at the beauty and the design of the systems of the universe that God has created for us. It is a devaluing of truth and honesty and real knowledge. It was this same perverse debauchery that tempted God nearly to give up on humanity and destroy all life on earth and start over back in Noah's day. So go back to Genesis um, 6, uh, 5 through 8 and 11 through 13. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth. And it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both the man and the beast and the creeping things and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have ever made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And the earth was corrupt. This is now down to verse 11. Um, the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and beheld it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of the flesh has come before me, before the earth is filled with violence throughout them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That with the evidence... And the nature of man and his vulnerability to corruption, particularly to the construction of idols, that seemed to be a major problem for ancient Israel. God instructed Moses to warn the Israelites against such contagion, not to be curious about the gods of the people that they conquered. Unlike the eternal, who is formless, these gods took on the image of human being, a beast, a bird, or fish, or celestial bodies. Often they would present as a chimera, a hybrid of uh, beings uh, that were part human being and part uh, had the body of a human being and had the head of a beast or a fish or a bird or some emblem of a heavenly body. The Egyptian, Persian, Indian, Greek, Roman, Chinese pantheons are filled with such beings. Okay, um, Deuteronomy 4, uh, verses 15 to 19. Take heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you. This is God direct, uh, addressing Moses. Uh, take, uh, care, 
Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb and out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourself a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the host of heaven, that you feel driven to worship them and to serve them, which the Lord God has given your people under the whole heaven as a heritage. Notice the very thing that he warned them against is exactly what they did. They built all these altars and corruption to it. Uh, skip down to 25 and 26. When you beget children and your grandchildren have come and grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess and you will not prolong your days in it but will be utterly destroyed. So pervasive was this tendency toward corruption in human beings that God instructed Moses to include prohibitions against it in the law with stern warnings about the consequences to society if corruption gets a foothold. Further, Moses knew that after his death, the absence of a strong moral conscience that they would corrupt themselves and fall back into uh, their carnal ways. This is Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 to uh, 29. So it was, when Moses had completed the writings of the words of the law of this book, they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take the book of the law and put it in beside the Ark of the covenant in of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today I am, uh, if today while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your offices, and that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and uh, turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And the evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger and uh, uh, through the work of your hand. Now you would think, one would think that eventually we would learn from history and not repeat the same mistakes. But no, corruption is so ingrained in us that it is difficult to root out. Isn't it one of the informal definitions of stupidity, doing the same thing over and over and over and over, but expecting different results? That's an informal definition of stupidity. Often corruption is not so overt. Rather, it is subtle and sneaky, creeping in unaware, slowly, quietly at first, so and so as not to draw attention to itself, until one day we wake up and evil is in our midst, all around us. Sometimes that corruption has been there all along, placed in our path like a landmine, just waiting for something to set it off. Matthew wants to use a term that I like for uh, such a deception. He called it pre-corruption. Pre-corruption, where counterfeits were set up well in advance, the genuine thing, so that we would then doubt the authenticity of the genuine when it showed up on the scene. 
Um, after centuries of recorded example, you would think that the Jews of Jesus' day could recognize corruption and avoid it. But no, in the New Testament, we still find Jude still having to warn the early church against creeping corruption. Um, this is Jude uh, verses 3 to 7 and then 17 and 19. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and to deny the only Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though, that uh, though you uh, once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of ages, afterward described, destroyed those who would not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting change unto darkness for the, day of, uh, for the judgment of the, of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, and as the cities around them, in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, uh, are set forth as an example the suffering and the vengeance of eternal fire. Verse 17, but uh, you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken uh, before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. Uh, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having spirit. Paul writes a similar uh, warning to Timothy in both letters, by the way, and is uh, considerably more explicit as to the nature of this corrupt person. First, Paul warns Timothy how to recognize such corrupt person. This is 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 5. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrines which, uh, according to and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that God, godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Here's the, here is a person of corrupt mind. He is egocentric. I'm using modern language, modern terms for the. He's a corrupt mind. He's egocentric. He seeks to cause divisions and factions among groups of people. He is obsessed with disputes over words and loves to argue. He's paranoid and destitute of truth. He lies continuously, from which he evokes envy, strife, mad railings, all for profit and self-aggrandizement, believing that the ends justify the means. Indeed, he seems to derive pleasure from the chaos and the discord that he creates. Paul warns Timothy to avoid such person, and his second letter to Timothy, he's even more specific. 2 Timothy uh, 3, 1 through 9. But notice that in the latter days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, of disobedience to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, I mean animal-like, 
uh, despisers of God, traitors, headstrong, hearty, haughty, uh, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. From such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into the households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sin, led away by various lusts, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janice and James resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt mind, this approved uh, concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be made manifest to all as theirs also was. So here's a more detailed portrait of the corrupt soul. He's narcissistic, arrogant, lover of money, boastful, proud, blasphemous, profane, disrespectful of authority such as parents, unthankful, secular, unloving, compassionless, uh, unforgiving, vengeful, slanderous, impulsive, without self-control, undisciplined, brutal, animalistic, and crude, depraved, despisers of goodness, traitorous, selling out to the best offer, stubborn, headstrong, willful, lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of God, falsely religious, going to church for show instead of true devotion, fraudulent, unacquainted with truth, preferring alternate facts, of corrupt mind, an habitual liar. Indeed, the single best indicator of corruption is his frequency of lying or his readiness to lie. For there would be no reason to lie if he had done nothing corrupt. All of these traits reflect the condition of the heart. So uh, if we are to conquer corruption, then we must effect a change in the human heart. For as Jeremiah tells us in uh, 17, and 9 to 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his doing. We are in desperate need of a Josiah today, someone to provide a respite from the wickedness that surrounds us. But I doubt that we can change the human heart as long as we are flesh and blood beings. As long as we are driven by carnal needs and desires, then I doubt that we shall see as a race, as a society, and can ever free ourselves of corruption. Romans 8 tells us to be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither can be. So then, they, are that, are, they that are flesh cannot please God. But evil is not the sole purview for us fleshly men. Even so, spiritual beings can have egos, like Lucifer uh, and vanity. We all know the passage in Isaiah uh, 14, so I'm going to skip that. <coughs> Scripture predicts that in the last day, evil will become so widespread that it threatens us with extinction. Imagine the powerful nuclear biological weapons in the hands of an evil, evil, capricious, unpredictable leader. The most that we can do in a democratic society is to not deny such wicked people uh, access to the power. Matthew 24, 21 through 22. For there shall be a great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to so this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days shall be shortened, 
unless those days shall be shortened, no flesh shall be saved. Moffat, of course, adds a lie. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. I doubt that we can do anything to stem the, the, the spread of corruption uh, globally or nationally, but we can work on ourselves. That's something we can do. We can work on ourselves. And if we do so, uh, then God promises to give us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of, of stone. That you can find in Ezekiel 36. Indeed, the key to conquering the individual corruption is the willing surrender of our hearts to God in love, not in resentful submission to a greater power, nor in fear of one capable of wiping us out of existence, but in love and awe of our Creator. So while we may not be able to eradicate corruption from our society, each of us can individually seek to cleanse our heart and be more acceptable before God so that we may sing with King David. Uh, Psalm 19. Uh, Sean, appropriate that you did the Psalm 19 reference. It's the final one for mine. And it says, Who can understand his errors? It's verses 12 to 14. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sin. That means sins, sins that you plan out ahead of time. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. God, protect us from our leaders. God, protect us from ourselves.